Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, and how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, Ryan Selkis on the podcast. We cover two things. First, everything that's going on in the government, regulation, nation state versus crypto. And second, we got to ask him once again, what his thoughts on ETHR? Has that changed since the last time we spoke? Last time we debated it, last time we argued it. Really interesting discussion here. I really think Ryan could be positioned to become one of our industry's leaders. He already is at Missouri. But now that this political conversation has really blossomed, Ryan really seems to be positioned to take a even more leadership position, kind of helping the crypto industry navigate a part of the world that everyone really gets frustrated about and no one really wants to have to partake in, yet you're kind of damned if you don't. And Ryan seems to be having just a fireball of energy behind him with regards to how to approach crypto regulation to get what we want. And rather than acting defensively, which is like anytime some sort of bad regulation comes up, crypto like rises to the challenge to defend us. Ryan is thinking offensively, which is how do we attack these issues and instantiate crypto in the parts of the world that we want to instantiate them in before bad regulation even comes about. I think that's a fantastic strategy and I really enjoyed that part of the conversation. And then, like you said, Ryan, in the second half of the show, we turned to a rehashing of a debate that we had last time Ryan came on the show about Ether as an asset, whether institutions are going to be interested in it and where it fits in his personal opinion and his portfolio. And there was definitely some concessions from versus last time that he came onto the show. Not as many as I would have hoped, but I think if we just keep on revisiting this conversation with Ryan over and over, it's simply going to be a death by a thousand concessions. It was nice to see that Ryan has come around more and more to ETH as an asset, like we kind of have been spinning here on Bankless. But I think there's a lot more room where he can keep on coming around to ETH a little bit more and more and more. Yeah, there's definitely room for growth there. You know, at the same time, it's like the last <laughs> conversation we had, it was literally a debate on whether ETH is money or not. And what we meant by that was, is it a reserve asset worthy of monetary premium? Is it going to like do well in the future? Well, listeners will have to tune into that section to hear what Ryan has to say. We'll leave it there. But anyway, guys, this was another fantastic discussion. We hope you enjoy it. Before we get into the conversation, we want to thank the sponsors that made this episode possible. Arbitrum is an Ethereum scaling solution that is going to completely change how we use DeFi. If you've been using Ethereum for the past 12 months, you've probably noticed the high gas fees and the slow confirmation times that have been plaguing DeFi. Too many people want to use Ethereum and it doesn't have enough capacity for all of us. That's where Arbitrum comes in. Arbitrum is a layer two to Ethereum, which means Arbitrum can increase Ethereum's throughput by orders of magnitude at a fraction of the cost of what you are used to paying. When interacting with Arbitrum, you can get the performance of a centralized exchange while tapping into Ethereum's level of security and decentralization. This is why people are calling this Ethereum's broadband moment, where we get to add performance onto decentralization and security. If you're a developer and you want to save on gas costs and overall make a better experience for your users, go to developer.offchainlabs.com to get started building on Arbitrum. If you're a user, keep an eye out for your favorite DeFi apps building on Arbitrum. Arbitrum has been working with over 300 teams, including Ethereum's top infrastructure projects, and will be opening up to all users shortly. There are so many apps coming online to Arbitrum, so you may want to pack your bags in preparation for the great migration to Arbitrum Layer 2. To get up to speed with Arbitrum, follow them on Twitter at Arbitrum and join their Discord. 
Bankless is proud to be supported by Uniswap. Uniswap is a new paradigm in asset exchange infrastructure. Instead of a cumbersome order book system where trades are matched with other humans, Uniswap is an autonomous piece of software on Ethereum, which is what Ryan and I call a money robot. No human counterparties or centralized intermediaries, just autonomous code on Ethereum. Input the token you want to sell and receive the token you want to buy. Something brand new in the Uniswap ecosystem is the Uniswap Grants program is now accepting applications for grants. We have been saying this for a while and we'll say it again. DAOs have money and they are in need of labor. If you think that you have something to contribute to the Uniswap DAO, apply for a grant to Uniswap. Just look at the size of the Uniswap treasury. It's almost $3 billion. This mountain of capital is looking for labor. Do you have something of value to contribute to the Uniswap DAO? No matter how big or small your idea is, you can apply for a uni grant at unigrants.org and help steer Uniswap in the direction that you think it should go. That's exactly what we did to get Uniswap to be a sponsor for Bankless, and you can do the same for your project. Thank you, Uniswap, for sponsoring Bankless. Bankless Nation, we are super excited about our next guest. He's been on the show before. This is Ryan Selgas. He's the founder of crypto analytics firm Masari Crypto. He's a longtime crypto advocate. He's been a content producer in crypto for quite a long time. And more recently, he's become a single issue voter. We're going to talk about what that means too. Ryan, great to have you back. Welcome to Bankless. Thank you for having me. I'm surprised that uh, you wanted me to come back and slap you around a little bit more after the last <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. Well, you are alluding to the second topic we're going to cover, which is uh, ETH and whether your thoughts on ETH have changed. We had a debate the last time you were on on whether ETH is money or not. Want to get to that. But first, man, I got to tell you, it feels like you've been on a streak lately or something. Masari just raised $21 million from some massive names, 0.72. That's billionaire Steve Cohen. That's his firm. You've been spitting fire about unelected bureaucrats in government. I feel like rallying the crypto industry about what's going on in the infrastructure bill and getting the industry involved in politics. How's it feel, man? How's it feel to be Ryan Selkis these days? It uh, feels pretty similar to how it did two weeks ago. Uh, I, you know, I've lived through a lot of chaos in the last eight years in crypto. Uh, you know, that's, that's a lot of dog years. So um, I think uh, generally pretty, pretty steady. You know, social media... Um, can um, can be read a bunch of different ways, uh, and and I know when to dial down and, and up intensity. I think uh, depending on on what's going on, um, but it doesn't really change my day to day. Um, so, I think the 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 first thing that is really important about the last couple of weeks is what happened and the way that it happened with the infrastructure bill and this last minute provision uh, that was inserted, and then the bipartisan efforts to amend this particular provision of the bill, and then the last minute stonewalling. Everything about the process cover to cover was essentially 100% of what everybody hates about the US government and government and today's decaying institutions in general. So this was not a very like risky position to go out on a limb on, <laughs> but it, it was an opportunity, I think, to uh, help shake people awake and and kind of catalyze people and 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 get them riled up in the Ari Emanuel never let a crisis go to waste camp right so um, I I do think that this is a crisis um, for crypto I don't think that it's going to shut the industry down I don't think that it's something that's going to necessarily cripple us but it's definitely a move in a very negative direction 
that we're going to need to work hard to, to overcome. So it is a crisis. And I think to the extent that people are finally starting to take political efforts seriously and ongoing engagement down in D.C. seriously, that's important. Now, when I say engagement, that's a loaded word. And a lot of my frustration, and I think the, the unique voice that, that I have on this particular issue is um, I'm sick of the bullshit as is everybody else. But most people can't actually say that quiet part out loud because they're running regulated businesses within crypto. <laughs> they're either running an exchange, a custodian. They um, they have a token. Um, they're they're investing other people's money. Right. So so there's a, a, a lot of things that I think are, are pretty unique about me um, just from where I sit in the industry. A, running an information business and, and B, not necessarily touching other people's money or, or, or processing crypto transactions. So, so you can be a little bit more vocal about some of this. Um, the other thing that's important is uh, this is a very bipartisan response right now. Um, I think if you look back to the early crypto days, it's a lot of libertarians. It's a lot of like, you know, crypto anarchists and, and small government maximalists more than anything else. But more recently, Crypto, Ethereum, all the new application builders, there, there are a lot of progressives um, or classical liberals, I guess, uh, that, have, that have entered the frame more recently. And uh, it's not that they don't care about progressive issues. Um, they do. They just also happen to be very passionate about tech's ability to kind of advance humanity and, and, and be a part of the solution, um, particularly when you know, juxtaposed with government and, and some of these like legacy, like monolithic institutions. So I think um, both from like right and left, um, the thing that has changed in the last couple of weeks is people are really fired up. There's an opportunity to get engaged uh, down in, in D.C. and enforce the issue um, because this is going to be very politically expensive for representatives on both sides if they end up on the wrong side of it. And I think the the, the big um unique uh, tone or, uh, or or niche that, that I think I, I, I tapped into is um, the fact that engagement no longer needs to just mean education, advocacy, kissing ass, essentially. There is, I think, an opening to play a little bit of offense now. And I think everybody right now is, is scrambling to figure out how do we do this productively? Because yes, most of this is still a uh, an education problem. And the, the episode that you guys just did with Jake was perfect, right? Like I, I agree with him, like anything that can be ascribed to incompetence versus you know, malice, you know, generally it's, it's incompetence. And it's historically just been that they're not paying attention and they don't understand how this tech works. But I don't think that's, um, I don't think that's really an option any longer um, for elected representatives to not pay attention because crypto is the fastest growing sector of American tech. I think it's important for us from a geo geopolitical perspective, particularly when we compare ourselves to China and our future competitiveness. And it's basically the only technology that is doing anything to preserve civil liberties in this country and, and defend against the overreach of the ubiquitous surveillance state. You look at Apple's announcement um, from last week that was buried or a couple of weeks ago that was buried on a Friday that they're, they're essentially gonna in incorporate backdoors into their products. Um, you think about basically what Treasury's trying to do with this bill in making sure that all of DeFi is surveilled. And you know, at, at some point, we need to push back against the illegalization of, of all private transactions and play a little bit of offense. Um, and I think riling up the base, um, organizing at more of a grassroots level, and, uh, and yes, ultimately primarying and unseating 
um, elected representatives that are openly hostile versus just ignorant about crypto is, is going to be a good strategy. The difference between this year and years past is we have a lot of money to actually put this into action. Um, and I think it has to be done now because um, the market has been going up. And if you're going to play offense, play offense in a bull market um, when there's as much distress as there current, currently is in, in institutions. Um, don't do it after a 50, 60, 70 percent drawdown when they can just slap us around on consumer protection, on fraud, on everything under the sun um, that you know is coming the next time the market takes a dip. I love your voice in the space. And for the listeners, I think we're going to divide this conversation like two parts. The first is we got to talk about regulatory nation state versus crypto. And the second part is uh, I want to hear an update on your opinions on ETH as an asset, Ryan. But like, let's stay with this theme of playing offense, crypto versus nation state. This is for bankless listeners. This is kind of a taste of the fire that Ryan's been spitting lately on crypto. And I think this really resonated. Um, there's a lot of likes on this tweet, but it's basically the message. I'm sick of feeling like we have to apologize for all our early stage and walk on eggshells around politicians and regulators. This is Ryan say, tweeting this out. We built a $2 trillion financial market from scratch in less than a decade with absolutely no institutional help and active encumbrances from government. Meanwhile, the banks give you 0.025% interest on your deposits and front run your trades legally. And DC grifters overspend and debase your tax dollars while they insider trade stocks with impunity. And this really captured, I think, a lot of the, the Zeke guys in crypto and that's kind of that playing offense. As you said, it, it feels very much, uh, Ryan, like uh, the politicians are kind of newly experiencing this force and not sure on what side they're going to fall on, mm -hmm. right? So like, it's a bipartisan thing. It's not left versus right, like almost everything else in our political discourse these days. And the politicians haven't yet decided, are they going to be crypto friendly? Like what's mm -hmm. the cohort? What's the uh, the coalition around um, crypto that's going to support this? Or are they going to be anti-crypto? And what's the coalition that's going to support that? It feels to me like it's all squishy and they haven't figured it out. But can we talk a bit about like, I'm curious, it seems in DC that there is a certain contingent. We asked Jake this question uh, as well, but like that is against crypto. Yes. And I want to know why, mm -hmm. like, why do they hate us? Well, because they can't control it um, or they can't control it in the way that they would like to, which is fully, uh, I guess for, for lack of a better term. And, and you know, for, for many decades now, we've had a two party system that is really just one big government party with different policy goals. Um, libertarians lose elections because they always say, vote for me, I'll do less work. Um, and it's probably what we need, but it's not a very good message because people want to know, I'm going to vote for someone powerful. They're going to advance my agenda. They're going to advance my interests. Well, I'm going to get you know, this, this, and this from, from this political leader. When really what we need is, is just you know, a greater degree of, of, of decentralization. Um, and I think that's where crypto has been pretty powerful. Um, if you think about crypto basically being like an opt-out political movement in many respects. It's a way to play that thesis proactively. Um, and what I've uh, compared it to, you know, you think about like gold bugs versus people that are building in crypto. Gold bugs are waiting for the end of the world, living in a cabin in the woods and digging holes in the ground to put shiny metal like back in from whence it came. Um, folks in crypto might have the exact same thesis as those gold bugs. But instead of being in a cabin in the woods, digging a hole in the ground and putting a shiny rock, waiting to ride out the apocalypse, they're actually in the front lines building things. Every day and every single day, a new problem is created in crypto. 
because of the unintended consequences of what have, has been built so far. And, and almost always, someone immediately recognizes the problem and starts a business to solve that problem. We've seen this for a decade now. Every single major problem that crypto has uh, unleashed onto the world, the horror, has ultimately yielded like a billion dollar business. You look at Chainalysis, it's a $5 billion business right now. They, they have, have uh, done data forensics to help regulators and law enforcement worldwide actually track money launderers. You look at Taxbit, just a few year old business. The narrative is that crypto is full of tax evaders and people that don't want to pay their taxes. And, and this is just a way to kind of cheat the government and your fellow citizens. Taxbit is a $1.3 billion business. Did they get there because people are evading their taxes or they're trying desperately to pay them in a, a manner that doesn't take a week and a half to understand how to comply with impossible tax policy in the U.S. or abroad? Masari, like we were created to basically be a first principles Edgar repository for disclosures and, and other project information, solve the investment fraud issue. I can tell you right now, some of my investors have relationships with Ripple. One of the first things that I did when we started the company was write a multi-month screed against Ripple and how um, how horrible uh, their investment practices, their token selling practices were for their end investors and how shady the marketing was around it. Um, so yeah, there are folks in this, in this ecosystem that want to see it survive, advance, and ultimately become more anti-fragile and, and get built out in a way that is going to be a, a force for good in the world um, versus just sitting on the sidelines saying everything is going to shit. Everything is broken. There's no way to fix it. I'm going to buy gold, wait for the dollar to get debased, and then come out of my cocoon or my hiding after a decade when the dust has settled. Um, and I think that's pretty powerful because it's techno progressives um, and it's you know classical liberals and and it's like all the libertarians molded into one, but playing offense instead of just defense and and basically saying you know what we're all screwed. I feel like that's particularly true in DeFi. This whole idea of like we're building a new, better financial system that's the goal: more transparent, more open. Right? It's like. I'm curious what you think about this. It seems like everybody in Washington all the time is trying to protect us from crypto. Right? It's like this protection atmosphere. Well, you know what it is? It's a it's just a massive projection. Yeah, right? I was wondering. This is what they this is what they do. They're corrupt. Is it code they're for corrupted. like control? They want to control us? Is that what protection means? No, just they're all all of their concerns just project their own corruption. Right? They're they're they're, they're worried they're worried about um, grift whereas the the revolving door in DC is just from a, a, a seat in influence in DC to a lobbying seat or in-house at a big corporation and then back again. You know, Janet Yellen made $7.2 million last year during COVID um, when she was giving speeches to financial services companies via Zoom. $7.2 million, her time is not that valuable. I refuse to believe that um, unless she was ultimately going to become the new uh, Treasury Secretary, which of course happened. So that that's money well spent, but that's just part of the grift. And and this happens at all levels of DC. People know that it happens. It's you know it, it's 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 just assumed that this is kind of the way that business is is done in DC, and there's no real way to stop it. So if you think about the ethos of DC and the people that are working there, and and you know what the revolving door looks like, and how people actually make their money, then. Of course, they're projecting all the worst things onto tech, onto you know, crypto finance and, and, and all the entrepreneurs that are working, because this is how they would be operating if they're in the private sector. 
It's just in their DNA. And so let's call that out. Okay, so so it's in their DNA. <laughs> but let me ask you this question, because uh, this is actually further in the agenda we wanted to get to, but let's get to it now. Um, you also tweeted out recently about crypto that we need to spend money, lots of it. Mm-hmm. Like crypto should also be playing this game, is what you're saying. And we should also... I don't know, maybe pay for Janet Yellen to, to come speak to us? I don't know. Is it, Are you basically advocating that um, crypto play the same game that everybody else plays in DC and have a stake at the table? Is that uh, something that's important to crypto? And is there a moral issue with that? I hate it, but I think you have to fight fire with fire. And I think people are slowly starting to wake up to that. And, and you know, here, here's the issue. Crypto can be shut down. China just proved that it can be. Um, do I think the U.S. moves that quickly? Do I think it's as dire, the political situation and, and kind of surveillance state in the U.S. as China? No. Um, but it's certainly not where it was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you know, certainly a couple hundred years ago when, when the country was formed. So we, we are moving in that direction. Um, and I think the, the reality is there's a lot of damage that regulators and policymakers can do to crypto via um, tax policy and by overextending the Patriot Act and, and all of the you know, associated provisions related to national security that, that they'll kind of throw at us. And we saw a sample of this with the Treasury's report on privacy uh, tokens late last year. And if you remember, you know, December, January, um, when uh, Steve Mnuchin on his way out of office was essentially trying to sneak in some of the, these last minute you know, provisions that would, would make it very difficult to support any privacy tokens. This was, you know, uh, this was a big part of uh, what they had in mind. So um, anything that they can't, can't control, um, I think, is scary to them. And so if you uh, ultimately want to get elective representatives in office that understand why this is important, not just from a constitutional theory standpoint, but from an electoral standpoint uh, and and from the perspective of their constituents, then that's going to take active engagement beyond just yelling at people on Twitter. Um, You're going to have to host fundraisers for uh, politicians that are going to be on the right side of the issue that have this as part of their platform that are going to be going up in primaries against their 70, 80 year old counterparts that have been in office since before the internet um, was created. So I think um, there's no way around that because the alternative is pretty bleak. Everybody likes to talk a big game that we can just like route around the, the government and and you know this is permissionless and and so you know even if it is shut down we're we're we're, we're still going to be able to operate these systems. That's all true, but it's just going to it, it will cover to cover be a black market and there's a sizable contingent of the world that is not going to play ball. Like the Americans and Europeans are not going to um, transact in, in systems that are, are deemed illegal by their authorities, because those are still relatively functioning, well-functioning societies that have otherwise you know, robust financial services. And so you're not talking about situations like Argentina and Venezuela and sub-Saharan Africa and high inflationary uh, countries in, in Southeast Asia. People will generally fall in line. There will be a you know some contingent that will not, and they'll opt out. But it doesn't change the fact that it will be illegal, or it will be extremely expensive or cumbersome from uh, cumbersome from a user perspective to actually participate in these uh, in these systems. So, you know, the 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 folks that um, you know 
that are, are the loudest and, and have this battle cry on Twitter that like we, we, you know, we need to play a different game or we need to opt out. The problem with that is there's no new land in the world. There's no place that you can escape to. There's no free world to settle <laughs> like like we had when when America was settled and, and the country was founded. Um, you can't even escape to the metaverse, right? Like they will literally tax. This is what we're talking about. They'll they'll tax and surveil everything that you're doing in the metaverse even. Um, and I, I know that you were being you know, completely facetious, uh, David. And this is you know more proof that I, I listen to you guys versus just kind of come on every <laughs> once in a while to harass you. But like the, one of you made the comment in the Jake episode about like the IRS literally wants to know when your axes are mating. <laughs> and it's not that far from the truth. Like any activity that you have in the metaverse, they're still going to be, they're, they're still going to look at like, where was your phone logged in to, to establish a tax nexus, which is insane. And, and so if there's no place to escape to physically, um, and you're not allowed to do virtual commerce, even, even if it's completely unplugged and, and kind of disassociated from the rest of the economy, um, then you have no other choice to but the kind of f- uh, fight on their home turf. And um, I think you can do so intelligently. So, you know, I'm not I'm not advocating for like January 6th insurrection. Like that's that's the, the worst type of, um, uh, you know, un- undisciplined, theatrical, dangerous uh, type of, of revolt. And, and ultimately it's completely counterproductive uh, and it's it's extreme. Everybody knows that um, I'm, I'm not even advocating for like online harassment um, or you know, vitriol it's you know, directed or you know female you know senators or congressmen getting you know misogynistic tweets and threats and and you know all the garbage that you see um, what what I'm suggesting and, and, and advocating for and I think a lot of people agree with even if there's not as forceful about it because they can't be is you know we have to start grading these folks on a one to five system and the fives that are allies get a tremendous amount of support, an eye-opening amount of support through social channels, through grassroots campaign efforts, through political donations, through super PAC contributions. The ones have the exact opposite in terms of how well-funded their enemies are and their political rivals. And then the two through fours is where you can continue to focus on the education and advocacy. But the the, the education and advocacy work of, for the two through fours will be infinitely easier if they see what's happening to the ones and fives, because on the fives, you've got a big carrot and on the ones you've got a big stick. And if we can unseat some folks like Brad Sherman that are in the one camp as established as he is and threaten folks like that, or even make their lives very difficult during the midterms, um, it's going to pay, I think, extremely lucrative long-term dividends. That's to say nothing of the, you know, the, the, the broader, impact that we can have just through social channels because crypto is very, very vocal. Uh, and I, I think the, the challenge there is slightly different, but it's um, it's how do you uh, contain some of that enthusiasm or, or kind of channel it proactively so so we don't look like a bunch of nut jobs, which may never be solved. <laughs> Ryan, I, I, I think I would think we definitely need to unpack this because I think this is a fascinating point of the conversation that we should really spearhead here. I was going to ask you, now that we have this like regulatory drama of the last two weeks in our rear view mirror, what have we unlocked? But I think you've kind of already answered that question in bits and pieces in the last 10 minutes or so. I think where this is going and what you're talking about when uh, we're talking about reviewing our regulators on the merits of whether they support our industry or not, I think really what has happened in the last two weeks 
for this industry is everyone has taken a moment to reflect on what crypto really means to them and to ask themselves the question, am I a single issue voter when it comes to politics and crypto? And I think we all know that crypto is has so much tribalism and like a desire to defend our home turf and so much energy and as we all know so much capital behind it that perhaps the measure of a single issue voter body of the crypto world might actually be one of the most significant cohorts of a voting body that we've seen arise out of any part of the political sphere that we've seen in America in the last I don't know since the NRA um Let's go into details onto how you think the crypto voting body can galvanize itself and direct itself to get what it wants in Washington, D.C. What are the next steps now that we have identified that we are here in this moment of time? How do we actually adequately capture this energy and direct it to get what we want done in D.C.? So I'll answer that question in terms of like, what are the methods and, and how can mm-hmm. we actually make some forward progress there? But but first, you know, it's important to note, I, I intentionally use the NRA as a, like a, uh, a call to action just because it's a good X for Y comparison and it's provocative. So it kind of hits all the Twitter checkboxes. Right. But there couldn't be um, anything that's further uh, from the truth in terms of the, the um, fundamental issue that I think crypto single issue voters have with the government right now. Um, you know, the NRA... Um, you know, guns are used in, in school shootings and mass shootings and, and you know, gun violence is a real problem in the country. Um, you know, other, I won't kind of name drop other organizations, but but most of the other organizations where you have single issue voters, the, um, the issues that they're talking about are extremely contentious. There's often like an element of violence um, or like national security implications that, that kind of rally people up. And in, in crypto, the issue is there's no opposition. Like there are very few intelligent opposition leaders to crypto. It's basically proponents and then people that don't understand it. That's an extremely powerful position to be in because like I said, it's not just about like right wing or libertarian or progressive um, voters that are working in the industry right now and that actually care about building this tech and, and, and preserving its ability to you know, get developed um, in a way where you can still regulate the, the centralized organizations that are you know, building broker services. Um, and so I, I think that is uh, just a, a, a major difference between some of the other lightning rod, individual member-led um, you know, organizations, the, the card-carrying member organizations for, for other lobbying groups. Um, now, how do you actually win that? Um, I think there's probably about a dozen people collectively working in DC right now at the major think tanks and trade associations that everybody knows about in crypto. 20 tops <laughs> working on defending this entire ecosystem. Um, and you know, that I think has worked in the past because we haven't really been on the radar. This is one of the first times that crypto has been a, a major part of the conversation in any legislation that's been passed. Most of the conversations to date have been regulatory in nature, right? How's the IRS going to t- treat this for tax purposes? What's the SEC say about, you know, whether this is a, a whether these tokens are securities or what, what's going to happen with the Bitcoin ETF? Um, what does Treasury, you know, think about the AML, you know, uh, KYC requirements for, for crypto brokers, things like that. 
Um, how is FinCEN thinking about this from a, a kind of monitoring standpoint? Almost the, the only bills that have been, I think, even tangentially you know, tied to, to crypto haven't really gone anywhere. And um, and so this you know, last minute provision, it was only included because the politicians thought that was there was some type of money that they could extract from the industry. Right. Again, follow, follow the money and, and you'll you'll see where their real interests lie. Um, and so I think now that it's on the radar, the the big thing that's changed is is they've we've we've kind of had Pandora's box opened on us where they looked at the twenty eight billion dollar score from the CBO um, and their estimate as to what tax receipts could be with tighter enforcements and tighter surveillance of, of DeFi in particular. And now it, it's some that's something that can't be undone. Um, nor can the kind of battle that ensued over this because now they know that actually this is a much bigger deal to our con- constituents and, and this is a pretty you know, fiery community that we didn't really know existed before. But the actual people in DC that are funded to do this on a full-time basis, that, you know, there, there's, there's probably about 20. So the first thing that, that needs to happen is um, you know, we need to make sure that that Queenstown and the Blockchain Association and some of the other um, groups that are, are, are popping up have the funding that they need um, and we have the right lobbyists infrastructure in place um, to do the combination of like education, advocacy work, um, and then, you know, just generally uh, have a better coordinated PR campaign. That could be, you know, funding, endowing chairs at, uh, at, at think tanks so that the, you know, the research from the Independent Heritage Foundation or um, Hutchins or, you know, Brookings, wherever, um, that all of these folks in DC actually rely on to support their, their policy um, positions. Um, there's a lot that we can kind of do there and, and, and coordinate from a, a policy support standpoint. And then most importantly, which is what I've been talking about, is just um, getting more involved in electoral pro- politics and, and having this grassroots effort where you have um, hundreds of thousands of, of dues paying members to a, an individual member uh, dominant organization um, where you can actually mobilize people in local elections, local campaigns, you know, going to town hall meetings, all the blocking and tackling that I think people don't really appreciate until um, until you see how much politicians care about not having pains in their ass, um, just harassing them at all times. And and it's one of those situations where the, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. And so a combination of, of money, boots on the ground, and um, and and just potential bad publicity, I think is 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 probably enough to get our ultimate policy goal, which is not don't tax us, give us favorable treatment, do this, that, the other thing. It's don't regulate things that you don't understand um, and don't penalize crypto um, unnecessarily, particularly versus um, traditional financial services companies that we're, we're talking about or um, other you know, tech giants that uh, would be subject to the same regulation. I could definitely say I would be a card carrying member of the self-sovereign crypto lobby group. And uh, maybe they could issue that as an NFT. That would be a bit more conducive to the way I carry things these days. But um, one thing that gave me hope, like you kind of started this episode and uh, I completely agree. You use this term state surveillance, right? As like, feels like there is an all out assault on our digital privacy and freedoms. Mm-hmm. It's not just crypto, it spans beyond crypto, right? So like the newest thing with Apple, releasing a software update to give them the ability to basically scan all of your local photos on any Apple device, right? How dystopian is that? And what's weird about this, Ryan, is like 
there is nobody in our government who is pushing back against these things, right? Maybe they're not incented to push back. Maybe they don't care. But what's given me some hope actually recently is crypto has the, and I think we've seen this over the last two weeks, has the coordination ability and the capital and just the raw community fervor to push for self-sovereignty. And maybe we launch this thing and it's primarily about crypto, cryptocurrency, but then maybe it expands and we capitalize other areas we care about. Because like, look, if I have the right to own cryptocurrency, but Apple has the ability to like scan my uh, device for whatever it wants, like I don't want to live in that world either. And this is why I've kind of come, I don't know, I used to be less uh, enthusiastic about engaging you know, on the lobby level and in DC and like, you know, as, as the traditional uh, organizations have. But I think we need to for these issues because if the crypto industry doesn't, who's going to, right? Like big tech isn't going to come to the defense of, of privacy and self-sovereignty. They don't care, right? So like, it's got to be us at some level. And maybe we start with crypto and expand from there. That is a hopeful future. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I think that there's multiple ways to do this. Um, but, you know, generally speaking, I think we have the resources right now. Let's win the battle that's right in front of us. And then um, we can start talking about how we play with other organizations. Because I, I ultimately think that this is a team sport. And ideally, you know, we've already seen um, allies at the you know, EFF that fight for the future at um, a number of other organizations. And I think uh, generally... There's often a lot of overlap that can be done in terms of research, in terms of advocacy work, and and you know uh, I think across the board, um, it's uh, it, it it's a starting point to just kind of focus on cleaning our own house, and then uh, ultimately being in a position where we can uh, cross pollinate for you know, many other important issues across the board. I see what you're saying, and I think that there's this is like a wedge, and that's why I think about it as like a political movement in and of itself, because um, there's so much that I think is embedded in in, in crypto values more broadly that um, we haven't really defined as a community because we're, we've generally been so focused on like all the differences between the communities versus, you know, our, um, uh, the, the kind of common interests that, that have been shared historically. And, and that's by design, right? Like it's a decentralized community. It's not a company that can just kind of lay out its, uh, all of its core values. I'll tell you, like, just for me personally, it's, um, it's, it's almost been like a little bit liberating because we went, we went through this period with Trump in office where you could not talk about politics at all, <laughs> like in, in like any, uh, in any context, because the, the, the tenor, uh, was just so, um, over the top charged. And I think, um, yeah, you know, before that, it, it wasn't entirely different. But, you know, before that, in, in like the 20, 2009 to, you know, 2015 environments, um, there, was, there was a lot of political discussion within crypto because th this this movement had political roots and it was it was, you know, kind of anti-government, I guess, anti-big government, certainly um, to start. And then, you know, Trump took office and it's like you you, you can't actually talk about anything political because you're like three steps away from from either being referred to as a communist or a Nazi. And, and the, so like nothing good comes of it. Um, and then, you know, again, two weeks ago, 
when we saw the bipartisan effort and you see everyone from like Ted Cruz on the one hand to a 21 year old brown progressive writing an open letter to, to Elizabeth Warren, like on literally the same side of the issue. I, I have trouble thinking of like a starker contrast than those two people <laughs> articulating the same argument for like why it's important to support crypto long term, you know, um, and it, it, it's kind of like smash the Overton window to a certain extent for I think a lot of people that have maybe fallen into the camp of uh, what I would think of as like radical centrism um, or like, you know, just like blinders on, let's focus on building and, and not focus on every single debate that has that is basically just like dominated today by the two like 5% extremes of the bell curve with everybody in the middle just getting shut out because you know, they don't want to talk about it or, or, or they don't want to incur the wrath of, of being on the wrong side of an issue. And um, I think this the, the conversations that I've seen and like the general agreement, uh, importantly, with with yeah, I think many of the people in in, um, in crypto on certain kind of core values has been um, it's been illuminating. And I think it's also been empowering for people to that kind of feel strongly about the why, like we're in this industry, aside for just the memes and the money, which, you know, is, is a nice byproduct. I think that's been um, a good rally point and, and, you know, people have been comfortable getting a little bit more politically engaged. Hey guys, coming up next in this show, I ask about the possible future of perhaps alignment between the Ethereum DeFi crypto industries and the United States nation state regulators in an attempt to allow them to increase dollar demand, dollar dominance, the brand and strength of the US dollar abroad. We all know that stablecoins are such an important role in DeFi. How can we convince regulators to tap into that strength rather than regulate that strength away? There is a possible future where we are actually aligned with these two things rather than adversarial. And then in the second half of the show, we also turn to the question of Ether and its investability as an asset as regards to institutions, which is a continuation on the first time we had Ryan Selkis on the podcast roughly about nine months ago. We asked about Ryan's updated thoughts around Ether the asset, how he's weighted his portfolio to have more exposure to Ether, and yet where he still believes Bitcoin fills a, an important niche in the world of crypto. All of these conversations are coming up next in the show, but first, before we get there, we have to talk for a moment about some of these fantastic sponsors that make this show possible. When you shop for plane tickets, you probably use Kayak, Expedia, or Google to compare ticket prices. So why would you limit yourself to just one exchange when you trade crypto? When you make your trades, you want to make sure that you are getting the best possible price on your trade and that you aren't paying high gas costs that you could have otherwise avoided. That's why you should be using Matcha. Matcha routes your orders across all the various DeFi exchanges on Ethereum, Polygon, Binance Smart Chain, and gives you the best possible prices without taking any commission. Matcha has smart order routing that splits your order across multiple liquidity sources if Matcha sees that it gets you better pricing. Trading on Matcha is super easy because it pulls the liquidity for me into a single easy to use platform. And that has even saved me multiple times from accidentally picking the wrong decks to trade on and accidentally getting a bad price. 
Matcha also allows for you to make limit orders on chain so you can set and forget your DeFi trades and they will go through automatically while you're away. New to Matcha is an integrated fiat on-ramp so you can purchase crypto directly with your you can purchase crypto directly with your credit or debit card and have that fiat be instantly traded for any token that has liquidity. When you're making a trade, head over to matcha.xyz slash bankless and connect your wallet to start getting the best prices and most liquidity when you trade your crypto assets. Living a bankless life requires taking control of your own private keys. Not your keys, not your crypto. That's why so many in the bankless nation already have their ledger hardware wallets, which makes proper private key management a breeze. But the Ledger ecosystem is more than just a secure hardware wallet. Ledger is the combination of the Ledger hardware wallet and the Ledger live app. And if you're used to seeing all of your crypto services and favorite dApps all in one place, Ledger is where you want to be. Not only does Ledger let you buy crypto assets straight from the app, but it also hooks into decentralized exchange aggregators like Paraswap, which makes sure that you are getting the best prices on your trades without your assets ever leaving your control. DeFi never stops growing and the Ledger Live app grows alongside with it. So click the link in the show notes to see all the DeFi apps that Ledger Live has and stay tuned as more and more apps come online. And if you don't have a Ledger hardware wallet, what are you even waiting for? Go to ledger.com, grab your Ledger, download Ledger Live and get all of your DApps all in one place. Ryan, one possible future I see ahead of us is that we actually have an opportunity to convince regulators that aligning with the crypto industry is in their best interests. Um, using the stablecoin side of DeFi is a way to export the US dollar and the value of the US dollar and dollar demand globally. And it also, if we can get regulators support behind this, it can be a huge offensive weapon against the Chinese CBDC, which I think people who do pay attention to it generally agree that it's a massive threat to dollar dominance. Meanwhile, we have U.S. regulators having these banking panels or seminars asking what is crypto even useful for, just really broadcasting their complete naivety about what is so cool about this industry. So there's a future world where we can actually convince U.S. regulators that instead of being overbearing and overregulating this industry, that we can actually get them to use this industry as a weapon against the Chinese CBDC. Are you optimistic that we can actually make this happen? And if we can make this happen, do you have any thoughts about the right path to get there? I think that argument, it, it, it works because it's truthful, right? If you just look at how quickly the U.S. can move at a kind of centralized government level on certain issues, um, it's just, it's not very fast uh, by any stretch of the imagination. And, and, and that's actually the one thing that's been like, very positive for folks within crypto um, in uh, in the American and European scenes. If if our governments were as functional as China is, I'm not saying that we want to live there, but if, if we were as functional as the CCP is and just making unilateral moves, then um, then we could have you know a real problem if, if there was political opposition to what we're doing. But um, generally speaking, because we move slowly, things get funded slowly, innovation happens slowly. And so I... Um, I think there's a credible argument to be made that the installed like tech base um, that we have is uh, really going to have to be built by private companies and that are, are facilitating transactions and these open protocols um, because a like Fedcoin is just not 
Like, can, can you just imagine how inferior like FedCoin as a product would be if it was rolled out by the big banks? Um, it's laughable. It would definitely suck. Right? Like you're, you're just not going to have anything um, near what we see in crypto. And, and maybe the government would argue that's for the good of uh, and for the protection of, of consumers. But I think, um, you know, by and large, it's uh, I buy that argument. I think we should make that argument that um, the government should be working proactively with crypto companies and supporting them. And yes, regulating the centralized you know, businesses that are working on this infrastructure, because it is arguably the best way to preserve the dollar's strength um, over time. So say we do go down this path in an attempt to get regulators who really, really don't like crypto to be more okay with crypto in an attempt to use crypto to be offensive against the Chinese CBDC or, or just protecting the brand of the dollar. I'm going to go ahead and guess that if this reality plays out, the crypto industry is going to have to give some concessions. Um, we're going to have to make some compromises with the way that this industry works. The first thing my mind goes to is perhaps something like Tether. But even USDC has a very non-KYC element to it that is probably concerning to a lot of U.S. regulators. Those are the first two concessions that I, I come to my mind is probably more regulation around stable coins. But what olive branches can we give to regulators that doesn't just hamstring what makes DeFi and crypto so cool? Or what are they really going to ask for? Probably no matter what. Do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I think the hard line in the sand needs to be that developers and, and code needs to be protected. Um, and uh, the ability for someone to uh, actually receive customer information needs to be taken in con into consideration as to whether um, certain regulation should be um, put on uh, any, any contributor to an open network, right? So this is basically like the staking and, and kind of validator issue on the one hand, and then um, just the contributors of code on the other. So, you know, I, um, I think that we, um, we have to be realistic. And I think that the industry is realistic about centralized companies, centralized exchanges in particular, uh, being very proactive about working with regulators. I think we should expect that there's going to be, you know, continued oversight and tax reporting requirements and um, in general, like customer um, information sharing requirements with the Coinbase's of the world, the Gemini's. And, and to be honest, I don't even know that any of those organizations are like pushing back on that. Um, I think the, uh, the big um, sticking point um, might be around private transactions. Um, and, and we already kind of saw hints of that six, you know, six, nine months ago. Um, and, uh, aside from, you know, private transactions is going to be DeFi, which is, you know, just, there's a lot of capital gains that are arguably being generated in decentralized exchanges that there's, there's no oversight, um, over, and there's no kind of clear tax reporting policy. Having said that, the, the data forensics companies exist to get that information. So, you know, again, you're, you're coming into this, um, situation where if you are the IRS, you can make very clear guidance that transactions of such and such a nature on decentralized exchanges are taxable events. And you need to, you know, if you are attempting to launder money uh, or, or, you know, evade taxes by, you know, parking your money in DeFi, that's a really bad way to operate. Um, 
and uh, and ultimately, you know, you're going to get caught because there's a digital paper trail, and, and it's it's a it's a terrible way to actually um, execute a scheme like that. So I think um, I I don't I don't think that our expectations or, or, or what we're arguing for is, is unreasonable by any stretch of the imagination. And, and that's what um, makes me so confident that a, like a grassroots effort like this could actually um, uh, work out you know, very, very effectively because we're, we're on the right side of this. And I think the arguments uh, that we have uh, at our, our side make sense. And, and no one has really pushed back against them other than the very ill-informed takes of well, if, if this software can exist, then it's probably not good for society and, and we should shut it down or try to move it offshore. And we've only heard a few people really say that. So. Yeah, I agree with this. Like, So like, I think there are enough wins for regulators and legislators in the U.S. government here in crypto for them to get actually excited about it. It's like if they're not going to compete with China's central bank digital currency by rolling their own, which they can't, we just talked about that. I don't think there's an appetite to do that. What is their strategy? Well, like, it's got to be crypto. Export US dollars on crypto rails, right? Like Ethereum. Uh, what I do worry about, though, Ryan, is that maybe just in Congress, and maybe this is a symptom of like where the US government is right now, is just they're too like old and set in their ways to actually do it. You know, like they're just too content with the status quo. So we just roll around, like roll on, like the U.S. is doing on a number of issues. Don't make any progress forward. We just settle the status quo. And doing that is not a sustainable strategy for the U.S. So that is my worry. Not that there's not enough wins here. It's just that they don't care. Maybe they don't care. Mm -hmm. um, but let's talk about something else that's sort of related. Because I know you're very plugged into the institutions and I'm curious what the reaction is from sort of the, the big money institutional world to all of this. Did they freak out that crypto was like, it didn't reflect it in the, in the market price, which is interesting, but mm -hmm. were they freaking out that crypto is like a, a potentially contentious issue in front of uh, Congress and that this, you know, treasury is uh, possibly against it? Is that a bad signal to them? I, you know, I, I think it's a wake up call. Again, I think the, um, the existing regulated businesses and brokers are going to continue to be regulated uh, and and they're going to continue to have big compliance teams and legal budgets. And and I, th I think they'll be just fine. Right. Um, so. I, I I don't think that there's um, I wouldn't say that they're alarmed. I, I, I think it's it's less about it's less about being alarmed by like openly hostile actors within the government and more alarmed that this happened on such short notice. It was, um, you know, it, it was extremely fast. How it happened was very dysfunctional. And so now we're more or less at the mercy of those that are going to be um, writing the rules at the unelected regulatory body level, right? So how much authority is Treasury going to have uh, to write rules? How much um, authority is the SEC going to have? How much... You know, that is where authority is ultimately getting delegated. And um, that's definitely not a net positive. So I think um, a lot of what's being done right now with respect to, you know, kind of uh, arguments um, in the House and, and, and trying to uh, 
meter some of the the negative impacts of um, of what we already saw passed in the Senate, it's it's really just kind of laying the groundwork and setting the precedent for future court challenges. And you know, maybe we can get lucky and and there's um, improved language that comes out of the House and is ultimately incorporated into any final legislation that passes. But um, I think right now it's it's more of a long term game. And I can tell you, um, if they're not alarmed, everybody is certainly very mobile right now um, at, uh, at the institutional level. And that's, you know, DeFi, major investors, um, and then, you know, obviously the, the regulated groups themselves. Um, obviously, I won't, you know, <laughs> name individual names, but I'd say it's pretty universal that, that people are um, fired up and, and taking this very seriously. So as we all know, this is probably crypto's biggest regulatory event. We couldn't stop talking about it for two weeks. We're still talking about it now. And as a community, generally everyone kind of feels pretty emboldened after the fact, even though technically we kind of lost. And during the actual debates and the drama around different amendments and everyone was getting scared about crypto being regulated to death, crypto asset prices like had a stellar weekly performance. Uh, like Ether went from $2,300 up to 3000 Bitcoin was below 40000 and then zoomed up to 47000 So in the face of crypto's biggest regulatory hurdle, asset prices like had a stellar week. What, what does this tell you? Does this tell you anything? What signal is this? Uh, people are distracted by Pengus. <laughs> really? Yeah, do, you, do you generally think that the asset price movements uh, were just uncorrelated to what the drama that was going on in DC? Uh, honestly, I, I have no idea. I've, I've a long time ago given up on trying to understand what moves the crypto markets. But um, I guess the point is, this isn't like China. Like when China actually like pushed the miners out, that was a major event, um, and it, it had some like fundamental impact on on both you know, Ethereum and Bitcoin. Um, I would say long term, it was it was a massive net positive because it it made proof of work cleaner and you kind of uh, de-risk some of that geopolitical element. Um, I think uh, with what happened last week, it, for folks that are on the outside looking in, it doesn't necessarily look like the end of the world per se, because it's like, oh, well, you know, the folks that passed the, the bill ultimately went on the floor and said, here's what we meant. And so here was our intention in the rule. Obviously, we didn't mean that developers would be captured. Obviously, we didn't mean that stakers would be captured. So there was already like a little bit of hedging and people, you know, kind of hear that and they're like, oh, okay, well, this is probably just like lawyers dotting the I's and crossing the T's, right? And um, I just, I think that um, this is going to play out over over the course of years, right? Like even in the in the worst, worst case scenarios, some of the rules that we're talking about and, and some of the policy that's that's going to be implemented, we're talking about like 2023, Right, like you know, certainly into like 2022, deep into 2022. Um, so we're we're still quite a ways um, away from that. And so I think um, there's uh, plenty of time to prepare. There's going to be plenty of like you know uh, court challenges and uh, you know a lot of procedural issues. And 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 you know this is really just kind of like the first inning in terms of how this ultimately plays out. But um, it's uh, it's not something that would necessarily move the markets, you know, one way or the other on you know on a day to day basis. It's funny. Sometimes I wonder in crypto whether we just like create explanations based on price, or like if the market had have fallen out 
during those two weeks for other reasons unrelated. We definitely would have pinned it, the crypto industry, on you know regulation. It's always hard. I, I sort of agree with you that like the short-term noise in the market is so difficult to discern whether it's like signal or noise or whether it's based on current events or not. Um, so definitely have to think about this over the long run. This kind of brings us to the to the second topic here, Ryan, that we wanted to get you on for. And this is the topic of Ether, Ether as an asset. So um, bankless listeners, longtime bankless listeners may know we had a debate uh, last year. David was kind enough to host about ETH as a store of value compared to Bitcoin, right? I'm not going to use the term money. Let's not get hung up on the term money. But it was basically a debate as to whether Ether would accrue monetary premium, perhaps uh, surpassing the monetary premium of um, Bitcoin. And your take was like, hey, no, ETH is not a good monetary reserve asset. Uh, my take was, yes, it was. And then we had this conversation with like a number of different um, different trails on it. Um, but I'm curious. So it's been, I don't know, close to nine months or so since we last talked about this in December. Has your opinion on ETH changed since we last spoke? And uh, if so, in what ways? Um, I think the world has changed. So um, I ultimately think um, your thesis was right for maybe reasons I disagree with. I don't want to say it for the wrong reasons, <laughs> but um, but but I, I think that the ETH thesis, like there's been new information uh, over the course of the last six months that I think is, is pretty important. Um, the the first uh, kind of major uh, item for me is you, we've actually de-risked the move to ETH2 pretty, pretty significantly, right? When we last talked, it was, uh, it was, it was kind of very earliest phases of it. Everybody was celebrating, oh, look at all the, the, the that was, that was locked in the staking contract for the beacon chain. Um, uh, 1559, uh, I think was a, a big, uh, milestone. I also just think the continued, um, evolution and, and like health of DeFi and all the other markets that continue to predominantly, you know, ride the Ethereum rails, the just, explosive continued growth in stablecoin adoption and usage and lending markets and basically every conceivable metric for for decentralized finance um and then uh importantly the the fact that we still haven't seen a ton of value leakage from ethereum to other smart contract platforms and chains right we're starting to see like interoperability with layer ones we're starting to see layer one versus layer two um you know value flows and that'll play out over time, but for the for the most part, you know, uh, big, uh, Ethereum is like the the base layer is, is you know continue to show that it's uh, resilient and um, and primarily responsible for a lion's share of, of crypto transactions uh, writ large. So you know, one one thing that you know, I, I would I would like to see more of, and and you know, we'll, we'll likely have some product coming out here, is um, I think we've gotten so used to like market cap dominance. Um, we just need to have like all of the other like dominance metrics uh, top of mind and um, and whether it's like transaction volume, you know, uh, lending capacity, AUM for for whatever applications uh, Ethereum is continue to move up and to the right, you know, aggressively. So where I uh, where I disagree with you uh, in like the whole like Bitcoin to Ethereum um, debate is, you know, I actually had the uh, epiphany from Arthur Hayes at, at BitMEX. I think the way that he articulated it um, kind of clicked everything into place uh, for me because it, it was something that I kind of felt but didn't really have a, a good kind of verbalization of. 
And he made the point that if you look at like M0 versus the market cap of like big tech, they're about $6 trillion each. Is Ethereum going to be money or is it going to be the equity in the decentralized financial system? And this is not at all at odds with what I've been saying for years. Uh, in fact, I don't know if you guys were there, but like Ethereal two years ago, 2019, I was on stage and everyone was talking about, you know, uh, I don't know, whatever like the, the hot um, topic of the moment was in, in like Web3 or decentralization, the internet, whatever. Um, and I was on stage and, and you know, basically said to a room full of, of uh, Ethereum world computer maximalists that like if Ethereum was just the settlement layer for DeFi, that's literally all that it needs to be. And that's kind of where we are now. That's not to say that that's the only thing that's happening on Ethereum, of course. But um, the, the fact that Ethereum as a platform is generating real fees for fin the like financial internet, um, that is a massive multi-trillion dollar opportunity itself. Um, that does not necessarily make it a better money or a better shelling point for people that are thinking about just the, um, the value settlement use case that Bitcoin has uh, kind of built a narrative around. I also just think that the most entertaining outcome would be a 50-50 split um, between like the money winner and the financial internet winner so that uh, Ethereum maximalists like yourselves and then Bitcoin maximalists um, on the other hand, can just argue in perpetuity over the flipping and like the the reflipping and the unflipping and and like and 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 we basically just kind of run in circles forever because uh, everybody's talking past each other about like okay how are people actually valuing these two very different but important things? Um, I will say from a from a fundamental standpoint, the other thing that has definitely worked in Ethereum's favor that I underappreciated late last year was how rapidly like the ESG narrative was shift. Um, and, you know, from my perspective, we um, like the the Black Rocks of the world um, starting to get more active on um, on you know, climate policy and, and, and the potential risks that that could create for, for Bitcoin as a holding of, you know, not only individual investors, but potentially a treasury holding for other companies um, is a, a pretty meaningful development uh, that we saw in, in Q2. And, and I think that had a real impact. And, and I think they're staying power to that negative narrative for, for Bitcoin, potentially. Um, having said that, that's not something that Ethereum solved yet either. It's on its way to, but until it's solved, it's it's not actually solved. So I think, um, yeah, there, there's certainly a, a, a bunch of things that have changed, but um, my uh, my core thesis uh, for a long time has been um, both are valuable. Bitcoin is more valuable. I'm probably slightly overweight Ethereum at this point because of that new information. Wow. I still don't think it's money. I still don't think it's money, but I think um, the risk reward for uh, for both, if, if you put a gun to my head, I'd probably pick, pick Ethereum right now. Wow. Overweight ether. Um, that is a change. Definitely. Um, when you say overweight ether, Ryan, is that overweight versus Bitcoin as in you have more ether than Bitcoin? No, I'm not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> wow. There the slap slaps are coming in. Well, let me no, ask. I am I'm from, from, from a, yeah, I am, I am overweight from like a, a portfolio standpoint. Got it. Versus where they sit from a market valuation standpoint. 
So I'm curious, like, so I know the term money can be distracting for people. So let's not use this, whether it's money, whether it's a reserve asset, whether it's kind of equity in this GDP, that is Ethereum, whatever it is, right? Ultimately, like asset price go up if it's successful, if this thesis is successful is, is kind of what I think. Um, the last time we talked, um, asked you about the flipping or you brought it up maybe. And you said the answer is definitely no, mm-hmm. ETH would not flip in Bitcoin. Do you still believe it's a definite no? I don't think it's a definite no anymore. So I think that's why I've moved overweight. But I'm, you know, I'm also not going too aggressively in the other direction. Like there are tax reasons also not to, you know, to go aggressively in the other direction because I think both are going to succeed long term. And um, and uh, I, I definitely think that that Ethereum is, is potentially relatively undervalued right now. Um, so I'm, I'm putting more there progressively, but it, it, my position has not flippened. Um, that's not to say I, I, I am not convinced that we will see a flippening of market cap in the next couple of years, but the probability is not negligible either. But by the way, one thing that's interesting, I know you use the term, uh, Ethereum maximalist for David and myself. It's like, I don't think of myself as an Ethereum maximalist at all. Like, in fact, um, you know, David and I helped propose the index co-op, this thing we call the bed index, which is a third Bitcoin, a third ETH and a third DeFi, right? I think that is juxtaposed with possibly Bitcoin maximalists who would take up that mantle and claim Bitcoin that all they buy is Bitcoin, right? Um, so yeah, like the term maximalist is a bit different, but I have always thought that um, for a long time, ever since we started Bankless, that the ETH, I guess, fundamentals and the narrative was not appreciated. And I want to ask you a question about narrative, because I think that was one of the things you mentioned in your end of um, you know 2020 thesis paper, where you kind of sort of wrote predictions for 2021. One of the challenges with Ether is the narrative is too complex. Uh, is what you said. Do you think the narrative complexity, has that been simplified a bit better? Is Ether uh, maybe better understood in, not quite mainstream, but in sort of the circles that are buying it? Yeah, I, I think narratively it, it's, um, I, I still don't agree with like the triple point asset, like that particular mimetic. Uh, a lot of people have, right? Like I think it's resonated with with a lot of folks, but I'm a little bit more simple than that. You need ETH for working capital for gas, and to stake. So you need Ethereum for working capital, and it is a capital asset now. It's more like equity in the decentralized internet than anything else. It just so happens you also use that for transactions for now, but you don't necessarily have to, right? Like, you know, you can use USDC, many, um, many applications on DeFi denominated in USDC or USDT or another stablecoin. So you're already starting to see that. Um, and, and, you know, at the end of the day, you know, anytime that you run a transaction, you probably want it to be dollar denominated. Most people in the world will want it to be dollar denominated. So even if it's like an auto conversion to ETH um, at the time that you're paying a transaction fee for a specific DeFi application, that's something that can be solved. And you don't necessarily need to hoard ETH to pay for ETH at the time that you need it for a transaction. So the, the reserve demand is not necessarily the same as it would be for money. The reserve demand, the reason you would want to hold it is for a combination of convenience today and then staking and collateral. Um, and that I think it makes a lot of intuitive sense for investors. And like I said, it's just, it's such a massive market um, that um, that both narratives can win. Um, 
and look, maybe you will still prove to be right in that you know people will use this for money too. But I think generally speaking, people align around the single best use case for a single technology. And in this case, um, the capital asset for a financial internet, I think is is the stronger mimetic that is getting institutions excited about because they look at this like, okay, JP Morgan is a $400 billion company. Ethereum is a $400 billion tech, you know, technological network that you know we can understand because these fees are getting burnt. There's like, you know, real money that's getting earned by those that are securing the network, kind of like Bitcoin, but, you know, in, in, in more of like a shareholder base uh, perspective. Um, I think that's um, it's really easy to, to grok. And, and I think DeFi reinforces that because so many of the other DeFi applications are very similar, right? You're providing liquidity, you're providing, um, uh, you know, lending, uh, you know, capital for, um, for, for underwriting loans. Um, so like the whole like stake, earn, deposit, Kind of ethos um, and and the the uh, the flywheel that creates in terms of network security, I think, is like an important facet here. Last time, Ryan, that we had you on the show to talk about this same debate, we had to take some time to actually define money because it was a question of is ETH money, uh, and we landed on you know monetary premium is how you determine if something is money or not. But I want to ask you this because Ryan said for a moment setting money aside. We're all kind of primarily focused on number go up, right? Market cap. What what's the size of these market cap things? Uh, and so, say for a world in a, in a world where ETH does flip in BTC and Ethereum has a larger market cap than Bitcoin, in your opinion, does that make ETH money? Or how does the relationship of the market cap and whether a thing is money or not? How do those things relate? Can Bitcoin still be money yet still be under the market cap of Ethereum? Uh do you think that the value of tech stocks will eclipse that of M0, right? Going back to the co-opted example from, from Arthur, which, which I think mm-hmm. is the right framing, I think the answer is yes. So mm-hmm. um, will it happen? You know, how does value um, accrue to Ether versus Solana, Dot, you know, all these other networks? And by the way, the other layer ones. Uh, or sorry, the, the other layer twos, because like each of these other you know, layer twos, they're going to have their own financial... Uh, incentive, you know, uh, frameworks uh, across the board because someone's going to need to like actually process transactions on any blockchain, whether it's a shard, whether it's another network, whether it's the main chain, and they're going to need uh, need to be incentivized to do so. So, um, you know, we'll we'll see. Um, but like I said, I'm, I'm bullish on both. And um, right now, the growth in the Bitcoin story is still all about like government debt deficits, monetary debasement, and that trend is not decelerating. For Ethereum, it continues to be all about decentralized finance, permissionless, you know, kind of innovative uh, you know, marketplace infrastructure. And um, that is only accelerating. And we see the KPIs for Ethereum and, and all the applications that are running on it. And the, and the KPIs just keep getting crazier and crazier um, and more applications keep getting built, you know, on that infrastructure. So I think, um, I think both are, are, you know, still very healthy. Um, it's a little bit of a, an unfair comparison from a, a, a fundamental evaluation standpoint though, because if you think about Bitcoin as, as money and the mimetic around money, and you think about Ethereum as ultimately being priced as a financial internet and like the underlying stock or, or, or asset that secures the, the financial internet, then one is going to have only memetics behind it because 
you know, all, all currencies are memes. And then the other one is going to have some like actual KPIs uh, behind it. Um, so again, I think uh, to, to synopsize, uh, overweight Ethereum, but not more ETH than BTC. I definitely think that a flipping is possible. Um, maybe not likely, but you know, certainly you know, maybe like uh, my probability is up from 0.1% to, um, to 20%. So you got a 200x return on that, which is not too bad. Um, <laughs> there you go. I'll take a 200x anytime. Yeah, exactly. Um, and then, uh, you know, ultimately speaking, uh, it's going to be entertaining for me to watch from the sidelines as people argue about semantics for the next uh, 15 years. Oh, the arguments will be unceasing. <laughs> Hopefully we can come together on the regulatory issues, but yes, we know that there exactly. will still be arguments. Um, exactly. last, last question on this is what one comment you made was about institutional demand in our last conversation. And at the time, Bitcoin was getting a lot of institutional demand. I think Saylor had just made some of his you know, earlier purchases. Um, institutions were talking about adding it to the balance sheet. But that time you said institutional demand for ETH is a mirage. And I think you're kind of right, like, there wasn't a lot at the time. I mean, we made the argument that, um, well, you know, Ether is kind of a cycle behind, but it will play that cycle a little bit quicker than Bitcoin because Big Brother helped Ether out and like created the channel. Now Ether just has to follow that trail uh, as an asset. Are you starting to see more institutional demand interest for ETH as an asset as well? I mean, I'm not really at the um, at the front lines of this. I'd say anecdotally, yes. Um, for me, the thing that matters, um, I want to see more institutional adoption of, of ETH for sure, because our business at Pensari is market intelligence for crypto as an asset class. You don't need a market intelligence platform if it's just one or two assets that you care about. So for us, like it's, it's critical to have institutions actually interested in supporting ETH because that's going to help lead them down the rabbit hole for DeFi and ultimately like the the the, the universe of, of potentially interesting applications and assets. Um, so I um, I think uh, the the half life is um, is what we look at. I, I think the half life to get someone from like interested in Bitcoin or not interested uh, versus that what it takes to get someone who's already bought Bitcoin to buy ETH to get to go from uh, I have Bitcoin and ETH now like what's DeFi. And then, you know, all, all the way down, you know, into actually being like an active participant in these ecosystems or, you know, um, uh, NFTs are probably their own complete, you know, wildcard because it, it's a more, you know, kind of consumer friendly and, and like retail driven phenomenon. But for but for everything else, I think um, if you like Bitcoin, you're probably going to look at ETH at some point. If you like ETH, you're going to look at DeFi and that's going to be kind of the natural progression of things over time. Can I ask, uh, Ryan, so at Masari, I've definitely seen an increase in focus on like DeFi tokens and like the metaverse and some really fantastic research and analysis on these topics. Um, I think a lot of this like didn't exist a, a year ago in general as kind of, you know, asset classes. But what are the the sectors, I guess, within crypto that you are most excited about and that Masari is most excited about providing uh, analytics and research for? Is DeFi a key sector? Is kind of NFTs in the metaverse a key sector? What are the hot things we should be looking for out of uh, Masari? Uh, so, I mean, we've been uh, covering these assets on a sector by sector basis. I think we're, we're one of the earlier ones to kind of come up with these uh, designations uh, for, for you know, per asset basis and, and have that, you know, 
on our homepage, we've had that on our homepage for, for a year, being able to toggle between DeFi and Web3 assets and privacy coins and stable coins so that you're not just kind of comparing everything, you know, apples, oranges and uh, bananas uh, uh, across, the, um, uh, across the ecosystem. I think there's probably more hard data on DeFi and, and those um, financial applications how much capital is locked, uh, what the what the interest rates are, what the exchange rates are, um, and uh, and and there's just I think more um, infrastructure like open infrastructure like subgraphs have been developed for for all these um, different markets. Um, NFTs are definitely interesting, but I I there's no real like price discovery on on like individual NFTs, right? So like how that factors into like a market intelligence platform for institutions, I don't really know. I'm sure we'll probably have like rare rocks, like digital J, like rock JPEGs um, on the site at some point, if, if like the market continues to be insane. But um, right now, I think we're, we're just taking a wait and see approach on like how NFTs get incorporated. In the meantime, we, we definitely have a bunch of research on the um, NFT space. Um, and I've been keeping a close eye on that and, and DAO infrastructure and, and you know, other bits of that infrastructure stack myself um, because um, we know that there are going to be you know, additional plugins over time. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll see um, and uh, stay tuned. We got Mainnet coming up just a few weeks. You guys are going to be there. I'll be there. Yep. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Good. You got comps. Mm-hmm. Mainnet, September 20th through 22nd. We'll be talking about all these things. And um, the general uh, theme of the event is, uh, you know, basically our, our interoperable future and, and the multi-chain future. So uh, we'll be kind of going through the basics, uh, obviously for, for Bitcoin, Ethereum, um, but a lot of focus on DeFi, um, decentralized web applications, NFT infrastructure, DAO infrastructure, um, and then um, interoperability between other layer ones and, and layer twos, probably the, the kind of core themes of the event. I'm about to submit my speaker application to Mainnet right after this, Ryan. So maybe you can help me get that one processed. It better be good, David. <laughs> no. Oh man, it, it it better be good because I'm not even involved. So, um, <laughs> Fair enough. You can't pull any strings for you, David. Sorry, uh, you're on your own, man. Yeah, yeah. We'll take care of you. We'll find a way. <laughs> Every single year, Ryan, you put out a famously gargantuan report titled something along the lines of crypto theses for the following year, right? So big predictions about, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's also a summary about, you know, crypto over the last year, but also predictions over the next year as well. And in the crypto theses for 2021, you kind of finished off with this uh, section that you titled exiting to the networks state. And I think this conversation actually becomes relevant once again, as if it always was, but really becomes relevant with the earlier conversation we were having with the regulators and how they are pushing us into compliance, pushing us into regulation, pushing us into capture. So I want to pick your brain a little bit on what does it mean to exit to the network state and how is this conversation becoming relevant once again? Um, I think the the network state, um, you know, a lot of the writing uh, and a lot of the thinking there has been uh, centered around what Bology has been talking about for, for, for quite some time. And, and, you know, basically, you know, COVID has accelerated a bunch of tech trends and, um, and crypto is kind of the intersection of a lot of them. So I think, um, uh, I, I, I can't speak as uh, intelligibly and um, and as uh, with quite the crystal ball that, that he has. Um, but I do think that because of 
how incompatible some of our legacy institutions uh, and and kind of legacy laws are with kind of the current reality of of you know where we are with the tech. Um, the, there's going to be some real you know friction points and and issues to resolve that are going to require some political resolutions. And the very best thing that we can do right now is hope that there's just plenty of um, uh, kind of channeled fury, channeled uh, uh, assertive response to, uh, to to make sure that people don't unintentionally regulate us out of existence or, or to oblivion. Because, you know, ironically, that would be the very worst thing when you're talk, uh, talking about protecting investors the very worst thing in terms of um, you know promoting economic growth in the country, very worst thing for civil liberties and 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 privacy, um, because the folks that are building in in crypto are, are the ones that are taking those values seriously. So I, I think um, the network state um, is uh, I, I like the real world. Uh, I don't want to just live in the cloud. So I, I think the network state is is more about the future of the economy. And, um, and, and, and the future of kind of like individual responsibility and, and kind of sovereignty and how we kind of plug in and cooperate since, um, since more work is crossing borders and um, more you know, economic activity and, and social activity is happening online. Um, stay tuned for my 2022 thesis which there's no way I'll be able to write this year because I can't afford to take time off to write a 500-page book. I think you will find a way to give us something, Ryan. You've never let us down before. It's going to be a tweet storm. <laughs> um, there you go. We'll take it. Uh, Ryan. One, one, of, one of 1179. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ryan, it's been fantastic to have you on Bankless. We've really appreciated your voice in the space uh, all along, uh, especially recently. Really appreciated everything that Masari has put out and continues to put out as well. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Always a pleasure, guys. Guys, action items for you, a couple of them. Uh, Ryan alluded to it, but Masari's mainnet conference is happening September 20th to 22nd. Uh, make sure you check that out. David's going to be there. I think some other folks from Bankless. Unfortunately, I can't make it myself. It's going to be a fantastic conference. Uh, you can find more info in the show notes or at mainnet.events. Um, also, check out Masari.io if you already haven't. This is uh, something I check on a regular basis. Just fantastic crypto analytics. In fact, you see it every single week on the weekly roll-up. Yes, you do. When we check the prices. And when I'm feeling uh, particularly unhealthy about crypto prices, I'm checking this like frequently throughout the day. <laughs> anyway, great analytics there. Make sure you check that out as an action item. Of course, guys, risks and disclaimers. Bitcoin is risky. ETH is risky. Will the flipping happen? We don't know. DeFi is risky. All of this stuff, you should know. You could lose what you put in. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot. Bye.